Hi, this is Jeannie Patel-Thompson from ListenToYourHorse.com, and I am delighted today to explore the ins and outs of equine-assisted learning and therapy with Deidre West, who is head of the Healing with Horse Collective. That's an organization that supports and facilitates growth for its community of 2,500 equine therapists worldwide. You can join or learn more about their work at healingwithhorse.org. That's not .com, that's .org. Now, Deidre is a former university professor who has also studied Jungian therapy with Dr. James Hollis and the staff at the Houston Young Center, as well as Gestalt therapy, somatic processes, Eastern philosophies, constellation work, and various energy healing modalities. She has her own equine-assisted practice and has worked with diverse groups from international corporate leaders to war veterans to at-risk youth. So I purposely invited Deja to do this call with me because she has, you know, decades-long experience in this field. Um, She comes to it with a multidisciplinary approach. And from conversations I've had with her previously, I'm very excited about different aspects that we've talked about. So, Deidre, thank you so much for giving your time to us today. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for asking me to do this. This is uh, really an honor to get to do. Excellent. And what I, my, my purpose here is um, there's some concerns that are coming from both within and outside of the equine-assisted I just call it equine-assisted stuff because there's too many acronyms for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, um, both in and out of that sector. And it seems to me that what started out, you know, kind of Linda Kohenov's Dow of Equus kicked it into, you know, a, an international arena in a big way. So this, this whole equine-assisted therapy learning started out as a win-win, a super positive new way of earning a more integrated, respectful living from horses as opposed to, the traditional riding lessons and trail rides, um, but it seems to be coming under fire now from numerous groups who are concerned about the welfare of the horses in these practices. So I I would like to start out um, by saying, as someone who does this for a living, and as someone who is head of this collective of you know 2,500 people who do this for a living. What are you hearing as the top concerns? Because a lot of these concerns are being raised from within the industry. So I would just like to know, what are you what are you hearing and what are you aware of and what are you trying to educate your people about? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, there's a couple of things I've heard about. And, you know, I for a long time, I just recently became the leader of the collective and so before then, I really wasn't – I took my ear out of the groups <laughs> that were talking, um, community groups. So I, I'm somewhat coming back to this and learning about things anew. Um, but what I, what I have heard um, has to do with um, – oh, gosh. Some people sort of working with horses and believing that horses are inherently healing – and what seems to follow from that is that you can use any horse um you know that you that you can can work that you can find and have access to mm-hmm. uh rather than really looking for horse uh, and horses have personalities and and sort of goals in their lives too and so some horses might make what would be great um engineers <laughs> if they were humans you know um rather than a great therapist or coach or whatever so 
So in other words, to me, while horses might all be um, have some characteristics that are healing, they may not all be geared for this kind of work. Then, of course, every horse is going through its own life experience, and so it's having to heal too. They are having to heal from things as well. Um, and and then and and so if they're being asked to if they're doing a lot of dissociation or having some kind of experience that's not exactly helpful or healthy, um, they're maybe not in the position to help others in that unless both of them are getting helped by a third party, whether that's the facilitator or a herd of horses or whatever. Um, some other things that have come up is about the care and management of the horses. Um, so if the horses are in a care and management situation that's not healthy um, for them, then they may not be able to help others. Or they may be able to, but it seems a little bit um, uh, sort of incongruent to be asking that of them um, while keeping them in a situation that isn't healthy for them. So those are a few of the things that I've heard. Um, sentience and and Seeing horses as sentient beings has been a call as long as I've been in this field. And then really what that seems to come to to me is an exploration of what sentience is because we treat our, we, we consider ourselves sentient beings, but that doesn't mean that we're kind to us, our, ourselves. And so exploring what that means and um, how deeply that goes and how it's the same and how it's different for a different species I think are also conversations that are happening. That's that's pretty much what I've heard, and then I also saw um, a paper by Crystal Levera that was in, came out in August of 2016 called "Measuring Stress in Horses Research Project," and what she did is she surveyed 74 participants in the equine-assisted therapy industry, and she said the following causes of symptoms of burnout observed in horses were listed consistently as no time off or not enough time off not getting any time or enough time in a herd setting with no human interaction, long session days or multiple sessions back-to-back on session days, young horses with not a lot of life experience, good therapy horses being overutilized, lack of consistent detailed routine for all volunteers and staff, lack of consistent handling style by all volunteers and staff, Horses being treated like machines. For those who are who are doing the therapeutic riding component, they their concern was bad saddle fit, and lack of awareness of warning signs uh, from the horses by the handlers and staff. Ulcers were the highest listed health concern observed by participants and listed independently. So I think that you know people within the industry have a pretty good idea of of what's going wrong, um, and. I guess then we, we we're, and maybe this is going to lead us back into your comment about what is sentience because, you know, as soon as you go to monetize a being, um, you're kind of in, uh, you know, that dominion perspective where I am dominating you and you are kind of, you know, are you slave labor? Are you a contracted labor? I don't even know what the term would be. Uh, and then, of course, the, the difficult part of that is we have people who say, well, I couldn't um, have these horses if I couldn't earn money in this way, and otherwise these horses would go to slaughter. And it just turns into this very complicated thing. So what what I would like you to speak to all of that. <laughs> Throw it out there. Okay. okay. Go, <laughs> Deidre. Okay. Just lay it on us. <laughs> 
Well, first of all, there's a couple of things that come to mind. I mean, horses are, as any sentient being um, needs, which is, I think, every living thing on the planet in some form of sentience or another that some of them we might not understand, like plants and trees and so on. Um, But there is a clear um, need to have meaning and purpose in life. Um, and to be able to follow a destiny that I think all mammals at least experience. I would say probably more than mammals, but anyway, and and horses are among that. And so when we've put them in either pastures or certainly in stalls, um, we are taking and and take care of them ourselves, we're taking away a lot of what their um, roles and purposes might have been at one time, first and foremost being taking care of oneself, and um, secondly, having meaningful relationships and, you know, working in a herd and so on. So when we give them back a job, you know, um, I, I guess for me, I, I know that there are problems. I've heard about it. I've never seen a horse not do better as a result of doing this work if they're in a situation where um, they're protected from, you know, any imbalances that they're up against and things like that and if they're being asked to heal heal themselves because they can heal themselves by helping heal others and so um, I've only seen them become much more empowered much more you know if if no one's listened to you all your life or thought you were saying anything and then suddenly one day they started listening that's incredibly empowering um if someone finally thought you had something worth listening to and then followed your advice and then got better themselves, that's incredibly empowering. And so for me, I, I think um, there's a lot of things that go really well for these horses. I don't, I, I've rarely seen things go worse for them, but I, I guess there are people who have seen that. Um, but that would be my general mistake <laughs> on that. I mean, there's a lot of abuse in a, or what have you in a lot of fields of horse work, um, and uh, something where the goal is to honor the horse seems to me to have at least a, a pretty good, you know, line on things that is good for the horse as well. I think from from my perspective as, you know, I am not a practitioner in this field. I am a customer. <laughs> so I've had, um, you know, a number of personal sessions and I've also done group workshops and just from what I've observed, um, I would say the main thing that's made me feel ill during these encounters is when the horse is restrained. So in in the sessions I've had where the horse has been at complete liberty, and by liberty I mean not in a round pen, because you can't get away from anyone in a round pen. I mean in a, a big enough field environment where the horse can walk away and say, uh, you're yucky, I don't want to be around you because your energy's crap. Um, in that scenario, I haven't witnessed any kind of distress or stress signs from the horse. The times when I've witnessed horses being in considerable stress and, and possibly even dissociating are when the horses are haltered and they're on the end of the lead rope and they are brought in and, and the horse is not, you know, of course you have the session where the horse can make a choice and then at some point during the session for a particular purpose they might be haltered for a period of time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about right from the start 
you go out there and the horses are brought in on halters because they've been out in the field and they've been haltered and brought in. So right there you're like, okay, the horses are so excited to work with us. That's why they were out at the far end of the field and not coming anywhere near. And that's where, from my personal experience, I've seen the stress and distress and dissociation come in um, on the horses. Well, okay. Um, I guess I would say that there's you, for for a lot of methodologies, there's a the session would begin then um, with the horses at the opposite end of the pasture, and um, yeah. we would talk about why they're at the opposite end of the pasture, and we wouldn't walk to them. We'd wait till they came to us, or we might walk into the pasture. You know, um, so I guess. Um, if if the horses are i mean if the horses are in a big pasture and they're they may communicate even if you go up to them they can run away you know mm-hmm. so if you walk to the end of the pasture and then they let you catch them they're making a choice they're still making a choice they might be telling you this isn't extremely pleasant but they're still choosing to engage um so um you know i can see i i see your point and i also see that the horse is making a full communication. They may have said this isn't pleasant, and they may have decided to work and engage in it also. Um, they may have decided it would be really useful for you to walk across the pasture before coming with them um, for whatever reason they have, you know. So what you're that, saying that, is as long as there's no coercion used to halter um, or put a rope around the horse's neck, then the horse is indicating choice. I guess if they're coming out of a huge pasture, then I, it does seem that way. I've got, you know, I, I mean, I've had my horse, horses in an arena and brought clients in, and a horse that doesn't want to be worked with just won't be, you know. Either he that horse knows how to look invisible or he's not catchable, either one or, or both if he needs both of those, you know. And if a client's wanting to work with a horse that's not catchable, then and, and maybe there are others who are, that's interesting. Um and that would be the processing moment rather than continuing the fight to get the horse, you know. And the it, Now, I mean, I guess what I would imply is that these horses, when I went to, when I first went out to see Mustangs, they were captured. I was, my first thought is these poor horses. Those horses were vibrant, and they knew how to use those fences. They could come right up and be curious, and then if you came in the pasture, which the BLM, staff let me do those horses ran away then they eventually did come back up and i ended up surrounded by horses because they were curious so if so a horse is horse in it's fully empowered or even not as this case is but but they but see themselves as empowered beings then they know how to use fences they know how to use speed they know how to use all of these things as tools to um, communicate and also to keep themselves safe way more i'd say than probably we do And I I really like that. I love what you just said. And I think this is a great opportunity for you to share your setup because I remember when you first told me about it, um, I thought that seems to me to be the ideal setup for, excuse me, (laughs) an equine-assisted practice. So could you tell us about how (laughs) your, you know, your your round pen and arena and paddock and field and et cetera is set up? Right. Well, I mean, I've used different formats, but generally speaking, I like to use layers of space. The horses taught me this. So fences making those layers. So a round pen, the one I was talking to you about was a round pen inside an arena 
which was um, partially surrounded by the pasture um, on three sides. So uh, I've got, and I just leave all the gates open to all those different spaces, and the horses move in and out, and then those spaces become metaphors as well. Um, depending on how the person labels them, the horses may suggest a, a labeling system, <laughs> you know, that makes sense to that person when they see it. They'll say something like, gosh, this almost feels like my inner life and then my immediate family life and then my larger social life or, you know, past, future, present, you know, whatever. There's different ways that those layers could be used and suggested by the horses, I think. Um, that's why I usually call it guided work. Um, equine guided so yeah um, I've done it in, like I said in different ways because I've lived in mountains where I've had different sort of setups um, and I can use slopes and trees and all kinds of other things to help to you know allow the horses to use those things but generally speaking layers of space is nice and and I've seen horses um, they will see a client that they're used to working with and, you know, sometimes they'll bring that client from the pasture into the other spaces by pushing them on their back or however. I've seen a, a horse stand outside the round pen or inside the round pen um, with the gate open and stamp their foot at someone saying, get in here, you know. <laughs> it was very clear. That client was like, no, I'm not going in there. I mean, she was a 20-something-year-old. Um, so it wasn't didn't sound quite like my voice just did, but you know, no, and yelling at the horse and the horse stamping his foot and um, and then she went in. <laughs> so I, I guess you know, to to any any sort of this is always bad or this is always good. I think is a little bit um, dangerous because horses are so brilliant that you have to really open your eyes to what you're seeing from them. Are they trying to reflect your own reluctance, perhaps at that moment? You know. Um, or, or, are the, or is it really about them? Um, and there's ways to tell, but you have to first ask the question. But for your horses, I think the key part for me about what you just said is the gates are all open. And so if a horse invites someone into that round pen space, do you then close the gate or do you leave it open? Um, it would depend. I've closed it quite often. In this case, that horse closed it so she couldn't get out. There's a real power to that feeling. Um, I mean, and then we had to help him, you know, because the gate would swing back. But um, there's a, you know, if you get in that round pen, that there, you can't escape that feeling. I think it's a great space to work with people for the first time if they are skeptics or if they've tried something like this before and it's never worked because, in that small space, you can't escape the emotions that come up that that horse is really helping bring up. So the horses know this. They know that they are, that, that, I mean, my horses know, horses I've worked with know how to use different spaces to communicate. They ha they've had to. They have to yell at us all the time. We're not really listening because we always think we know better. So if they've managed to communicate to their horse people who love them but sometimes don't think there's anything to hear, and I'm not talking about probably most of this audience, but you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, if they can communicate to that crowd, then, you know, if we've got a, a facilitator who's really encouraging people to believe that this horse is trying to communicate to them, um, quite often it's much easier, I think, for the horse to find ways to do it than it might be with their own owners, <laughs> you know. 
I'm wondering too, I mean, I'm thinking in particular of a workshop that I went on and, you know, these people had traveled, they'd all paid their money, they were there to work with horses. Now, the horses are out in the field and they were not coming in, not of their own choice. And so then as the facilitator who's taken everyone's money, who's made a promise to the clientele, how do you stay in an integrity with what's happening with the herd, yet, you know, be a good business person and deliver on the money that you've taken from people who you've promised an experience working with horses. If you have horses who say, no, we don't want to do that work or we don't want to work with those person or that people. And I mean, I think I know what you're going to say in terms of you would work with the reality at the time, but you know, what happens if you're with, and I, I think there's there's more than a few equine-assisted therapists who are not at that skill level. They're, they they go to the place of, oh, my God, the client's here, they've paid money, and the horse doesn't want anything, and I have to give them an experience with a horse, and so I'm going to go get the horses. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I can't, again, okay, I hear that. I, I can't answer to what someone else would do. Um, again, what the training I've had from multiple sources and, and what I've always just done is if those horses aren't coming in, it's information. That does not instantly mean it's a no, actually. It's very rarely a no. I've not met horses saying no all that often. It's usually much more nuanced than no. So mm-hmm. either it means there's a conversation that needs to be had or there's a person who's afraid to go and needs to process that or there's a reason um, about loss or distance that's going on as a metaphor for that person's life that needs to be um, brought out, or there's a value to walking across that pasture before, well, as part of the session, I wouldn't say it's before the session. The session's begun, you know. The session begins before the humans arrive. I can see, I can sit out there, I often do this, um, almost always, before the person arrives, I'm there, of course, right? And I'm I'm watching the whole environment shift as I, I know that person's driving to the property. Um, I may never have met them before, but I'm learning a whole lot about them. And I may not know what it means yet, but I'm learning that things are already preparing for their arrival, from the birds, from the horses, from the you know from the weather, <laughs> how the weather's shifting, the breeze is coming or going. Um, and so, and they're not, nothing is saying no. Those horses aren't saying no. The weather's not saying no. But they are, it is, there is information in all of that. And so, I'm not saying every facilitator may know how to do that. Every training I've been to does indicate this as part of the training. Um, so, I guess I never feel alarmed. I think all of it's perfect for that client. So, it's more a matter of me just allowing that and helping them get um, into this space where they can allow it. And if they're mad, then that's great because now they're in emotion. And, um, you know, if they're mad that the horses are out in the middle of the pasture, and I've had people yell at me about, this hasn't happened, but maybe twice, but about the money they spent and um, um, now now there's no horses. Uh, Or in one case it was not the same setting, but, you know, and usually this is at the beginning, and they're like, well, you know, I'm, I've been here 15 minutes, and we haven't had any experience with the horses. Usually if they say that, by the time they're finished saying it, there's a horse right there. I mean, I've just never had it go badly, so I can't say. I, I've never had anyone leave thinking they paid too much. 
you know. That's I think that's really good um experiential advice to pass on to people to help them bypass that panic and you know, to say no matter what happens and maybe to have an internal commitment to yourself and, and a plan in advance. Okay, let's just say worst case scenario, none of the horses want to come around this client. What am I gonna do? How am I gonna still deliver value to that client? How am I gonna still direct them through a process um that's related to the fact that none of these horses will come near them. Right. I mean and, and, uh, uh, too, if I if I've got a client where I'm, you know, uh, I, you know, usually you know something about the client, and I usually do have the horses out in the pasture, and then they know to come through the open gates, you know, and they've usually already done that before they're there. If they're out they're there out already, there. that's still information. Um, but there have been times when I've started out, for whatever logistical reason, with the horses either tied to a fence or loose in a round pen or loose in an arena. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know. Um, but in a more contained way. That still works. Um, if I went out, I went to, the out to the pasture and asked for horses, horses, the right horses, the right horses came, horses. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess I don't usually try to catch them, but I think if I'm trying, if I have it in my mind that a particular horse is going to be right and that horse is resistant to being caught, usually there's another horse there pestering you. Let's say this is your first few times to do this and you're not, you know, and, and you've, you don't have the faith... So you want to take your solid horse you feel secure with, but another horse is pestering you. Well, put the halter on the pestering horse. That's obviously the one that wants to work. So um, I guess I've just never really – I don't see this as a problem. It usually leads to a much richer session um, because of whatever's going on. Nothing's ever a mistake. So I like that. Let's look at another aspect of this that's just come in over the um, the webcast page. So for anyone listening, if you're listening live and you want to join the conversation or submit a question, just click the link there and there's a question box on there and whatever you type in there, I will see and I'll bring it up in the call here. So we have a, a few questions that have come in. So for one, um, this person says, for me, it's not so much uh, being tied with the lead rope but also being directed, quote, at liberty by pressure, uh, disrespect, like round pen work. So this is, I guess, speaking to, um, you know, not 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 falling in line with the natural horsemanship thing that says that pressure and release is a gentle, nice way to work with a horse, but coming at it from the other angle saying, you know, any kind of pressure, we're back into dominance, and it's, you know, it's our, it's our classical patriarchal culture of dominance i'm going to make you do this and when you do what i want i'll i'll release the pressure off you so they're saying that that alone is um they don't like that and that's that's they feel that that's um encroaching on the horse's uh rights as a sentient being okay well um maybe this is a situation where the horse is you know, if there's a horse that you're feeling that protective toward, then maybe that's not the right horse to use, and maybe there's some wisdom to that, first of all. That would be my first thought, is to feel into that and what is the wisdom behind that um, concern. But both horses and humans live in a world. If if they're working with us, then they are not out in the wild, and so they're working in that paradigm, that patriarchal, dominance-based p- paradigm. I don't care how friendly you are. There, that's what's happening. Um, 
and if and and in their herds that's happening you know go look at a herd of horses and see you'll always see some young horse or um uh micromanaging horse and every horse has to learn how to cope with that and learn how to push others away as well that is part of their language it's not it's not bad it is us placing a label that this is bad and I'll tell you, in my opinion, I, I'm not a fan of natural horsemanship because of the primary use, the primary way of teaching being so much pressure-based. In my opinion, that doesn't mean that this is a personal opinion. I've seen it do. I've seen a lot of people do it well. I've seen a lot of what looks like a domestic violence situation for a horse. You know, it's not technically being beaten to death, but it's really an unpleasant situation where they're t- they're now learning to mechanize or or dissociate or whatever. That never, that's such a less likely thing to happen with a client because that client doesn't know horses. And so there's their own timidity, their own lack of ability to work a rope that way. You know, they're not practiced at it. So it seems less likely, I've, I've never, you know, it seems less likely to happen with a client. If you've got a client who's aggressive and, and really pushing a horse, um, and the horse is having to run really fast or get pressured into something, you're, the facilitator is always there to stop and process. Um, I mean, my horses are my team. They're not. They're not my tool. Um, I'm listening and responding to them all the time. If a horse is running really, really fast, and I don't see why, and I look them in the eye, and they're like, "No problem. I'm showing this person something." It, I may ask, you know, I'm going to base anything I do on that, whether it's leave it alone, make a comment, or stop it altogether based on what my horse is saying. So, um, but, you know, you really have to build your own resilience as a facilitator at, and, and have faith in the resilience of your horses. Um, that they're not, I think, I think personally that it's unintentionally, but condescending, basically unintentional condescension to assume that they can't handle that. Um, if they're, if you're there with them and working as a team, that, and I know it takes time to build that. But I just would invite people to think about what what paradigms are you placing? Um, if you have a human being that's constantly protected from their environment, how how uh, well do they manage that environment? So, you know, those be I don't know that you're doing them favors all the time. It's, it's, a, it's a very handle. interesting point that you bring up, and like you said right at the beginning of. You know, you said, well, we live in a patriarchal culture. We all live here. So, you know, and it's interesting to me. I wonder how many of um, how many of us people who are very uncomfortable with pressure uh, and dominance ourselves come from abusive backgrounds. So we have a heightened sensitivity to it. And again, you know, how much of that is our stuff? How much are we projecting? And there's the whole other part of it of, you know, and and I'm much better, funnily enough, at doing this with my own children than I am with my horses. I protect and couch and I do for my horses far more than I do for for my own kids because for my own kids, my viewpoint is I'm not raising obedient children. I am raising successful adults who can navigate this world that is patriarchal, that is rife with violence and dominance. And so I'm very interested in empowering them to be able to dialogue in that arena, to hold their own energy, to possibly use their own energy, um, you know, by sending it out in areas that it's needed. And so I want to read something else that came in. Um, 
this is from uh one of our one of our blog community and she is uh she's an equine therapist a bodywork therapist but she has also um for over a decade she ran a trail riding operation that was only for experienced riders because she had worked before with beginners and just couldn't take how much they pulled on the horse's mouths. And, and she just was like, that's just so bad for the horses. So I only want to work with experienced people who have a level of sensitivity to start off with. So she writes, um, <clears throat> when I pose this question of, you know, how can we monetize the services of a living being without dominance, or can we? And her comment on that was, and yet we work so hard and pay so many bills. Some horses have jobs. I think this can be a slippery slope. Horses and humans have had a shared experience for thousands of years, and much of the time it was a slave-master relationship. It's all in how they are treated and respected. I may be appeasing myself, but my horses got paid first. Feet, feed, bet, pasture, etc. They by far took the lion's share of the earnings. There were days when a horse seemed off, and I don't mean physically, but just not in the game, and they got the day off. I always operated on the listen-to-your-gut theory. I would even say to my partner, I don't feel right about so-and-so, and that horse could take the day off. But there are some days when I don't feel like going to work, and I do, and there were some occasions when we asked the horses to do the same. The slippery slope piece comes from when things happen as they did for the New York carriage horses. People felt so sorry for them having to work and campaign to help the poor animals out, which closed down the carriage trade, and many of those horses ended up in the slaughter pipeline. Not much use for a carriage horse if there's no carriage industry. So probably if someone were to ask those animals if they minded having a job, they might have surprised people with the answer. I know my own horses are bored out of their minds after having been out riding the mountains and engaging and doing interesting horse stuff all riding season. They loved meeting different people and figuring out who they could roll for treats, who'd scratch, who rode beautifully, always interesting stuff out on the trails. It was a full and alive, awake life. Did they like the jerks? No, but neither did I. And no one said, hey, take the day off. That client's a jerk. And there's a huge difference. This is, I think, really key. There's a huge difference between the alive, engaged horse and the poor soul who's shut down and dissociated to cope with the shite of their job. It's awesome. Isn't, it's a great comment, isn't it? It brings into it brings into play all these different pieces of yes, in an ideal world, we just have these beautiful souls free out on the pasture, and unfortunately, we don't live there. We live here. Well, hopefully, there are those horses too. I mean, I think it takes everything. But yeah, I mean, I think there are several things that. We're quite wise about that. Do you mind if I comment on Please. that a little bit? Mm-hmm. Um, one is, I mean, I, I have horses that are all hot-blooded Arabians from the hottest bloodlines possible. Some of them were rescues. I have Mustangs. Those were res- Some I adopted. Some were rescues. And I can put a beginner on a horse sometimes, you know, depends on, again, where that stage of that horse is. But heat on a horse doesn't necessarily mean not not able to self-contain. So a horse can be taught to, you know, they can learn, like we can, how to handle things that are difficult, um, even if they're very sensitive horses. Of course, it might be easier for a horse that's naturally stoic to learn these things. 
but it's also easy for a sensitive, or it's also possible, I guess, for a sensitive horse to learn these things. Um, and I, I, I've told you that I've started, I had the same thing where I had only clientele who wanted to, I didn't have clientele. And the reason I found out was because I lived in the mountains and people wanted to trail ride. There was no one offering trail rides. So if people came to me, that's what they wanted. They didn't want to take a lesson to learn. They wanted me to take them first time to a trail ride. So I said, all right, well, let's negotiate this. Let's try three three lessons leads to a trail ride. I didn't know if I could get this to work. My horses were hot, you know. Um, some of them were pretty green still. But by the third lesson of maybe just walking only the first lesson on a lunge line or whatever, by the third lesson, everyone was ready to go, whether it was on a long line or not. And if they were on a long line, they knew why by now, you know, um, on their lesson that took them out to the trail. But usually on that first lesson where I might not have let them do more than walk and I thought they'll never come back, but I can't get any more wrong than I am right now, right? You know, I can only try it. Um I had people crying by the end of the lesson saying that was the most fantastic thing I've ever done. I didn't know a horse would change its speed because of my breath or that I could turn my head this way and that would affect my horse's movement or that if I was thinking this stuff that that might change the horse's movement. This is going to be amazing. And this was already the best thing that I've done since I moved here or in years or whatever. Um, so, So there's already this invitation i think to to sort of challenge what you think is people will like um if you can just find a way to make it to meet them halfway if they're your if they're who's showing up at your door you know and then the other thing that i think i already mentioned was really that a horse also that's that's fully empowered can learn how to cope with what's there i'm not saying you want to put a harsh bit in their mouth and then let people pull Maybe you want to put a halter on their face, but you want to be careful about that because we often think that's easier on a horse, and it's not always because their noses are very sensitive as well. So, you know, you need to play with that. But um, a lot of things that we jump to as assumptions, I think we really need to look to ourselves of where that's coming from and then look to our horses to see what they're saying and then try to open it up. Mm-hmm. And so let's let's talk um just really briefly about that sticky place of, you know, becoming skilled at interpreting what our horse is saying to us and using, because that's really the whole basis for this work is to be able to listen to the horse and, you know, help interpret that for the client that they're working with. And then where, that, but there's a lot of gray area in there. Okay, so what if your own listening skills you know, are not that great, and you're misinterpreting a fair amount, and your horse is actually, you know, not in a good space, but you can't really recognize it. And then, you know, where do we go for, you know, horses that are not being kept at liberty in a pasture of a decent size with herd mates, but they are in paddocks, and so they're not allowed their natural herd behavior. So the basic horse keeping of the equine-assisted practice is not... um I guess dare I say humane. I mean it wouldn't it wouldn't even pass zoo standards, right? Cuz to to keep an animal in a zoo, you must provide a simulation of their natural habitat with the enrichment that they would naturally encounter in their habitat. So a horse in a paddock or god forbid a stall is nowhere near even zoo keeping standards. So you let's say you have an um an organization keeping their horses in that manner, and then saying that we're now going to interpret their behavior as being related to the client, 
but what if it's related to the horsekeeping and that they're being fed grain and and schedule fed hay they're not grazing they don't have access to low forage you know can you speak to that piece sure i mean i think it's obvious when a horse is always unhappy you know or always not well that there's something going on for them i mean that would be a a step number 1 if a horse is in pain you always look for the physical cause you know there may be a, a you know a physiological reason and you want to first look for you know the physical cause so that would be step number 1 that's going to be pretty obvious if your horse is always saying to you i'm not happy and then with a client and or you know then that's that's probably you know a consistent message from the same horse is a pretty good sign that that horse is unhappy um, um, not all horses in stalls are unhappy. There's lots of boarding situations where they have to have stalls because there's limited space. Um, but but if the facility um, allows horses out for four hours a day or whatever in small groups or alone, however they do it, you know, but with f- horses across fences, that's better than nothing. You know, I think your own website, as you you know, you guys have worked at different ways to help make a facility a better place for the horses. So we can't always change everything, and I do think that if the horses are given a job, um, you know, let's let's say the horse has laminitis and its choice was to have been put down or um, get to work with people in this kind of um, equine-assisted practice. That horse might have pain a lot of the time. It might have a lot of unhappiness in its life. And the one thing that's making its life worthwhile is the fact that it sees that it's helping other humans. That's, you know, you've got to really listen to the horse for that one. Um, and that's, I mean, I know facilities that do that, that, that that's the kind of horse they're working with. Of course, they're also trying to work to get those horses more healthy, um, and they're always trying to manage their situation in a very conscious way but you know that's a possibility i think doing body work and energy work and bringing those practitioners in is is great um those cost money so you can if you you know have a local facility where people need to practice uh, you know um i'm sorry like a school and the people at the, the students need to practice then asking them to come out um is a great way to get your horses some help as well if they're not able to work in a pasture setting um, even if your horses are in pastures, I think that's helpful. My horses will clamor at the gate, you know, when they see their um, favorite, you know, person who does healing work on them arrive. So, so there's all that. The the first part of your question, I, I confess, has left me now. What what was that? Uh, I don't know because I've moved on as well. <laughs> okay. um, so. No, I'm sorry. I I actually have a question that follows on to what you were just talking about, and this is one that came in on the webcast. Um, she says, I hope you touch on the state of knowledge research about horse welfare in all of this, not simply the physical down-to-earth basic care, but the psychological toll this kind of work has on horses and how to prevent burnout and help support horse facilitators. This is one of my main concerns, and there is growing awareness about this issue amongst professionals in this field, but few training programs address this at all. So what what do you have or what can you offer for these points about, um, you know, do you have, is there a procedure for to prevent horses from getting burnout? Like has anyone kind of 
set codified a standard of okay, a horse must not do more than X number of sessions a day, or not, or must have this amount of time off between sessions. Like, are there any standards about that? And then the second piece of that would be: is there any um, support for horse facilitators and along that? I guess kind of trying to figure that out with their own practice. Right. I, I guess I'm a little confused because the trainings that I'm aware of, like Path and Agala and uh, Pona and, you know, anything that comes off of any of those, um, and, and many others, there's, you know, we could name them all. When you first said Epona was probably the first, I would say that Epona was among three firsts at least um, that were pretty well known. Path, Path started in the 50s. And it began as NARA, North American Writing for the Handicapped Association. Um, they've changed their name to, you know, for many reasons, but, you know, to also include all types of activities with horses. And they've, and they've long, long had, sta- had rather, rather strict, strict standards, standards about, about that kind that of thing, um, primarily for riding horses, but certainly for all horses. That's always been a big move for them. Um, I'm not sure... I mean, I've seen the most I've seen of unhappy horses comes from that the setting where horses are being used for, um, hand, you know, um, riding with people who have limited abilities. And to me, it's more a matter of that horse not having had some time out of a stall and relaxing and whatever, because I think otherwise they would love their job. But it's very hard to hold yourself still and all that, you know, and take the weight and so on. But certainly, if someone's following Path's standards then I think those horses have a much better shot um, at being happy in their jobs. Um, I, you know, so I, I don't really, I, I, I think I would say that I'm not sure that the trainings are being followed. If I think most trainings that I know of have a great deal of concern for the animals that are done, worked with. My answer has always been to let the horse decide. So, again, I have all those gates open and closed. If a horse had went through an incredibly intense session, I might find that horse not wanting to be in the next session. If there are some horses that I'm trying to bring into an, a space, if if the horse I might have in mind doesn't have it in mind himself, then I don't go for that horse. Um, um, you know, there's that that part again. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I don't know the situations that the – questions are being asked about it sounds like specific settings Mm -hmm. and of course that's a concern um i just i just have not seen a horse not thrive if if they if someone finds that they're good at this work it also seems to be that the horse is really thriving as well right that doesn't mean they can't burn out that doesn't mean they may want a year off i've had a horse want a year off before um, and that horse got that year off, you know. Um, right. So I just so then we're we're back down to the paradigm of you know the association standards are one thing, and then the individual capability and um, I guess perspective of the therapist is another. And right. so you can you can have a great structure and great guidelines and great whatever set out, but if the individual is not either that skilled or is, you know, not of a consciousness where they are putting the horses before financial considerations or they feel trapped because they they don't have enough money to put the horses before the financial considerations, maybe that's where you're getting um, these less than desirable. Right, yeah, I mean, and that can be a problem. My horse that needed a year off, it, it, I found out 
you know, a few months after he stopped showing interest, he had cancer. Um, once the cancer was healed, um, which is a miracle, but once that happened, he was ready to go again. He just didn't feel well physically, you know, um, and we can talk about why he might have cancers and so on, but um, the it was healed um, through uh, homeopaths and nutrition, so um, after a vet told me to put him down, and then he was perfectly well again. So, And I've done that over and over with different horses that I've rescued. So, you know, a lot of times they are not healthy physically when I get them or, you know, whatever. So, of course, I'm listening to the horse all the time. And a horse with cancer might suddenly start wanting to work because, and you find out that that client either has cancer or later you find out that person just discovered they had cancer. You know, it's it's... And that horse had a resonance with that. But usually their reasons are very real, and they may not even have to do with what we would call burnout. I think the question is, you know, again, about what's going on for the person as well, not just the horse, but the person as well. How can you make the horse's situation better um, and, and look to it? And maybe that horse is reflecting something that might be going on in the whole system. Maybe the way the practice is being done needs to be shifted and explored and so on and delved into um, because I've just not seen horses not thrive in this. If they if they were chosen for it, you know, well, and if they were chosen for it, it was because they showed that they were interested. I mean, that's the other thing I would say is that when horses are loose and people choose it, you're, if you really watch those sessions over and over again, the horse is always choosing the client that they work with. So the person feels like they chose them, but really what happened was this beautiful two people or a horse and a person running across a meadow proverbially, if not literally, mm-hmm. and, you know, falling into each other's embrace. So a lot of what we're talking about um, I just don't even see occurring or it doesn't have to occur. The horses can be much as much a part of that as possible. So we, we seem to keep coming back to the same place over and over, and that is that all of these these negatives that we see happening can be avoided simply by giving the horse liberty. And, well, and, and really listening to, to your horse. Yes, exactly. And, being un- and fully understanding what's going on that's making that horse respond the way it's responding. Mm-hmm. I have another question that's come in. Um, she says, hi, I am training to become a psychologist in the near future, and I have a passion for both EAT and interspecies communication. I am a novice, and I'd like some pointers around things to consider, logistically and otherwise, if I wanted to provide a therapeutic service for clients that combined both these fields. <laughs> so is this a therapist, I'm guessing? Well, she says she's she's soon to qualify as a psychologist. Okay, thank you. Um, and then, but she's got the passion for equine-assisted therapy, and she's wondering how to, I'm not sure what she means when she says logistically, because was she talking about the kind of setup she wants, or um, she's just looking for a way to combine the two um, and wanted some pointers about things to consider. Okay. I'll tell you what, while you were telling that, I had some things I wanted to say about what I've been saying before. (laughs) Do you mind if I do that? 
so far. I mean, one of the things that I, I would invite people to always I mean, generally speaking, when I'm feel, looking at what's going on and I see a problem, a horse isn't happy or this or or maybe I'm not happy or something's not working very well. You know, um I I have to keep trying different things and asking and looking and when it improves then I know I'm on to something. Um I have to try something for long enough to give it a shot and then I move on to the next thing. This is a basic concept that I learned about dressage. If you're if you're trying to do something, try it for long enough that you you and the horse can get it. And if if you've tried for a while and it's just not getting there, it's getting worse or it's staying the same, then then try something different then. Don't try something right. different right away, you know. Give it a chance. I do this. I follow that same policy, and I try to do it with a lot of lightheartedness and faith that actually the answer's very accessible, always very accessible, um, and that the more I can bring joy and happiness and love, love to the situation, maybe joy and happiness don't always come with it, but at least love, <laughs> you know, which is behind everything. If I remember, only love is real. And then the love will show the answer. The love will show the way. And so I keep sounding, I'm aware that I keep sounding almost strident as I keep coming back to the same place. And it's not really a stridentness that I would like to to, uh, convey. I think it's, it's it's an amazing process of watching your world just open up from what you thought it was in your head, but you didn't really realize how, what layers you weren't experiencing that. Your horses can help open you up in that relationship with your horses. Makes the world ever more magical, you know. It's just, it's just really wonderful. I, I just hope that everyone can feel, you know, really encouraged to do this and and find the wonder that comes from answering these questions, and and not feeling like, oh my God, what if I get it wrong? You, you can't get it wrong, you know. Look at what's happening. If it's not improving, then try something different. You didn't get it wrong. You just, you know, tried something. You're mm-hmm. you're brilliant. Try something else, you know. <laughs> so does that help at all, or is that you know? Yes, I I think that's excellent. So so I'm sorry. Can you and um, so my well, brain was asking, so much on wanting to say that <laughs> I couldn't. Yeah, hear no, that's the not a problem. Well. And she's she's just asking how does she combine psychology with equine assisted assisted therapy, which I find kind of a strange question because I don't see them as different. I see every equine assisted therapist using psychology, but maybe I guess uh like a, like if you're a um you know, licensed psychologist uh not really sure what she's asking. Do you have any idea? Well, you said she's also wanting to do animal communication. What what that? Yes. Oh, uh-huh. right. So maybe that's the, that's the that's what I she's think not that might be what she's trying to see how to combine. Um, um yeah, I mean, it depends on what she wants to do. So, I mean, there are a lot of people who, I mean, I do anything I can to learn more about my horses. And so I've, uh, and wouldn't it be cool to hear animals speak to me? So I've done the animal-assisted communication courses as well. For me, and I wondered, oh, could I just do this in some way or another? Could I help other people with this, you know, and, and become actually someone who works with animals, um, to help them, you know, like how I agree, I see the point where it can actually open up all kinds of opportunities of how to work. And I mean, the answer really is what What are you most interested in? What are you most successful at that you like to pers- that you would like to continue to pursue? Um, 
And then from that, that may open up other things. But, you know, so if you, if you really get a kick off of working with humans and seeing their lives transform, um, then, you know, you might use your, your um, animal communication more to help you increase your um, sort of intuition or your sense of what's going on in a session and what your animals are telling you. Um, but have it be an EAP type of session, you know. But I think really that's what it would be about. Do you want to work with animals directly as your clients and therefore their humans are coming to you really to help the animal? Or do you want to work with humans as your clients and have them transform directly through you? Or do you want to try doing both? If you're going to do both, I would say try the one you like, you think is going to be the easiest and get that going and then try the next one. That's the one hard thing that's, that there is to do is when there's so many options Setting, you know, really putting your focus on one for a while, getting it going before you start the next one instead of trying to do it all at once. Yeah, and also, like you said, within that choice, giving yourself permission to experiment with different ideas, different techniques. And the horses themselves are going to give you, I mean, my horses are usually telling me what to do and saying, I will, oh, that's an awesome idea. I never would have thought of that. And to just open yourself up to be really loose and experimental about it in the beginning. Yeah. I mean, for me, too, like a negative experience, quote, unquote. So I, I did an um, I, equine assist, or I'm sorry, a, a training for animal communication um, where I sort of volunteered my horse as a sample, you know, for one of our activities that we did. And, and I got a I lot got of really, really negative, negative feedback, feedback about myself about and um, my farrier and who knows what all. And my question was, what was that about? You know, I mean, the rest of it was awesome. I had this, um, but I was like, what was that about? And when I felt into it, it was that horse was saying, well, it, it's not, it, it's, we, we want you to work with people, not with horses. And that was his choice, you know. <laughs> he wanted, And it was because he wanted to be involved in every session. So, um, you know, then I can take that for what it's worth. That to me, I'm hearing that my horses are not feeling like they're getting enough work, or they could certainly do more work. So before, and they're my first goal, right? So before I'm going to go do something that takes me away from them and helps me work with other horse animals, I'm going to make sure that I've got a full block going with the horses I have, so, so that they're feeling satisfied and happy. And if they start looking overworked, then I might want to look into this if I'm feeling underworked. You know, <laughs> that would never, I've never had that problem. But that's, I mean, that's, I think, part of the team work. Um, it's really being open to hearing what was that negative act, act, act moment about, or what I might describe as negative. It's not about a no again. It, it might be about a message though that you would never anticipate if you didn't pay some attention to it and, and feel into it and then communicate with your horse, you know, about it. So Exactly. Um just a little side question for you that's come in a little bit off topic. Um but I want to make sure I get this in here so I don't forget about it. Um this is someone from Dallas. She says there are codes of ethics for mental health therapists, each in their own area of licensure. Where could I find similar codes for an ES? Well, if you're, I mean, I guess if you're talking about therapy, equine-assisted therapy of any sort, first of all, a licensed therapist has to be there. And any of the licensing 
requirements that come with that licensed therapist go with that session or go with the EAP or EAL, or I'm sorry, EAT, um, any kind of therapy with horses. So no, nothing really, no one should be practicing therapy with horses who's not a licensed therapist. Um, so there's that. Uh, if they're looking for what's on top of that, um, there are best practices, and then if you're, with, if you're working from within an organization, that organization's going to have its best practices and guidelines and so on. EGALA has, um, you know, which is sort of one of the largest organizations that really supports equine-assisted therapy. Um, it, it does use a model, but even if you're not using that particular model, looking at their um, best practices and requirements is, is pretty key, I think. Um, they're not, they didn't put them together on accident. So, and a lot of those are the same throughout a lot of the different organizations. Some of those things will change based on a model you're using where one best practice just isn't relevant because it's so specific to a particular model. But those are there. Um, I guess the person may be asking or concerned about, um, you know, anyone not following those. And I guess, you know... I, I just don't put a lot of attention on that unless I'm seeing a problem. So I'm not a good answer to that because because the collective itself is a support organization, but it doesn't pro propose a particular model. We try to share best practices, but we're not trying to, to um, be gatekeepers. So I don't really... I, I think by inviting people to always think about what they're doing and use and have ethics... You, you know, really apply ethics and everything. That's that's where my goal is. Um, I'm not, you know, when I was a m member of a gala, I, I actually became part of the ethics board, and I thought there's really no way to enforce this unless someone call, asks for help with those things. Um, and so uh, that's just another beast to me. I don't know if that's a very good answer, but that's that's where I am with it. There are a lot of licensed therapists doing horrible, very damaging work, and there are a lot of licensed therapists saving the world, you know. I'm yeah. not sure licensure always saves anyone. You know, it, it is a nice step, but it's not it's not the end of the world. It, you know, it doesn't resolve all problems. So, Yes, and I mean, why, why should we expect it to be any different in the equine therapy field than it is in the human therapy field? As you pointed <laughs> out, we have wonderful human therapists and we have actual perpetrators and sexual predators as human therapists. So, you know, you're going to get that, and how do you police it? You know, what are you going to do? Do surprise cloaked farm visits where you book a session with every therapist to covertly analyze them, and and then where does the funding come? Like, you're right. It's like this whole thing of how do we even go there, and you can – so each association has its standards, but in terms of enforcing it, you know, right. it's the same if thing. I how do you enforce the standards of a human therapist? You don't. You wait until someone has a bad experience and complains and to the governing it. association. And, and Jeannie, you know I've been in situations where I had to report, where well, I needed to report people. <laughs> it was getting the right information, um, and they were therapists. I've never worked with anyone but therapists where I needed to report someone. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean it couldn't go the other way, but that's how it's been. And um, I had I was working with some therapists who were sexual predators, and the way I found out was through working with horses. If I had been just a staff member at a clinical facility, let's say, I'm not sure, 
that I would have known as much. I know I wouldn't have known as much about what was going on as I did because those horses were in the sessions. So that doesn't mean it's, you know, we've resolved this question, but I, I would say that, you know, the more eyes you're bringing on, especially equine eyes, the more um, is being shown of what's happening, truly, honestly happening in, a, in someone's life with no um, filters. And so if that's the case, then, you know, one can hope. I mean, I, that requires a lot of stuff. You know, it requires a lot of training, I think. I think it's much harder than listening to – because when someone's talking to you, they can, they can hide things. I mean, I'm very much – I'm very gullible to that. But horses see it. So um, then as a facilitator, you need to be ready to handle what you see. And, you know, it, it, getting that situation resolved took a year, and it destroyed my career for a while. Um, but I couldn't back away when I watched horses choosing to show it over and over again, even choosing to go to that facility and work when I had taken them away from it because I thought it was unhealthy. Um, so, you know, this is where I find... Us worried about our horses, My, I have seen horses have way more strength and resiliency than I could almost pull up in a situation. And I found myself to be one of the bravest people I've met in a lot of cases of the situations I've been in. So, you know, I, again, I, I, that's why I have the respect for them I do. Um, I think that's a really important point because I think too much we can come from that place of, oh, the poor horses and we must protect them and we must make sure they haven't suffered as again, probably like we have. This is another comment um, on this discussion topic. Um, this was actually a discussion after an, a little article by Ilka Parent, who's an Agala practitioner. Um, and someone commented on the thread and she said, my horses are always loose in a large field when my clients come and meet them. The horses know when people come for a visit, a ride, or for a therapy session, and so they can say no to any client, and they have done so once. When a veteran with PTSD came, they all started running and did not come close nor let him be close. It's another story of how we worked without horses until the horses were willing to work with him. That said, after the meet and greet is over, the client can choose to halter the horse or not. At that time, there will and have been moments for the horse that are stressful. I know this because of the running and or rolling and or extensive yawning after the session. Still, the next time the horse agrees to be with this client again, lowers his head to be haltered. The horses are willing to heal, even if this puts them in a stressful situation. I am trying to express that I am okay with the fact that there are times that the horse is on a halter in a stressful situation, as I truly think they are okay with it as well. At the same time, I am lucky enough to have another job. These horses um, are not her sole income, and my horses only have one or two sessions a day, not more, and often only four or five a week. So I would not put them in this position very often. But I feel the horse has such a big heart, they are willing to heal at some cost to themselves. What do others think? Well, I think, I mean, I, I, so there, that one really gets to some points where I would agree that we really do need, as facilitators, to watch for that. Um, I, you know, because I work with rescues and, and so on, I've got horses that would work until they drop, 
uh, with to help people. Um, and it's and there's a point at which it's not empowering them; it's it's draining them. Right. And at that point, I might not let that horse work for a while. Um, I have one horse that that would be true. And the reason, and she can work with anyone. She can work with suicidal people. She can work with predators. She, you know, and and it can really in her past. She, now she's much more um, balanced and and knows when to say no for herself. But there was a time when she didn't know. And so, of course, yeah. I, I guess I shouldn't say the horses always know. Um, but again, if if you're trying something and it's not, let's say you're trying something and you're saying I'm always going to let my horses choose, and then you find that you've got some horses that don't seem to be thriving where they used to be, then you might want to revisit that. Um, or if you just know that horse is working on its own life and uh, she's an overachiever or, you know, whatever you want to <laughs> say about her, she seems to be drain, getting drained rather than, empowered by what she's doing right now, um, then that would be a situation where I would pull that, you know, pull that horse. So I'm not saying invariably you're wrong to um, be concerned about your horses. Of course, you're always looking at your horses. There's no one one rule here. And um, there's no one checking up on you except yourself either necessarily. So, you, you know, you are your ethical guideline for that. Um, okay, so this this is a really juicy piece, Deidre, that you've just dropped in here, and I I can't I know we're coming to the end, but I can't leave this one alone. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to go deeper on this one, because so you know the attitude of so many people is to um, you know venerate the horse. Oh, the horse is spiritually wise, and it's this guide, and it's like you know one with God, and I'm just. And now what you've brought in is this piece, which I have also experienced, that the horses like us are also wounded. They can also be unbalanced. Or like you said, you've got a horse that's an overachiever, a horse that'll just work till they freaking kill themselves. And someone's got to step in and say, hey, this is not healthy for you. Let's heal your wounds. Let's heal, you know, the things that have happened. And often those things are as a result of being in in relationship with humans. But many horses have a healing path of their own to walk. And so who's advocating for them and who's being in awareness of that, that this is not a one-way street where we have this all-wise, divinely inspired equine ministering to this human, but that we also, it has to go the other way too. Right, and I mean, yes, we are, the horses are those things. They're also embodied. We are those things. We are spiritual beings in a body. We are human. We're going to mourn the losses of our loved ones, um, even though we might know that they're not really lost. Um, you know, we're going to mourn when our culture does something that we don't approve of, even though we know that there must have been some reason why it happened that was meant to happen. You know, love is all that's real. It's it's going to come around sooner or later, right? But mm-hmm. we can still mourn that it's going to look worse than we thought it was going to look. We're, we can still mourn that we lost someone we love and we miss them. Um, we can still mourn that we live in bodies and we'll never see that precious body again, you know, that precious embodied being again. Horses are the same way. So it, what you could say about a horse in that situation, I'd say I'd that say someone that who's saying all of that maybe looking at the horse too much as spirit level um, when a horse is actually embodied and is going through a learning process in this physical form just like we are. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so we're all resilient, and we're all much probably more resilient than we realize. And we're also fragile, you know, <laughs> you know and we all we need all to need take care of those care of things, things in ourselves. So, yeah, yeah. Um, there seems like, like there was that. another aspect of that. And I think the the perspective of, you know, being conscious to toggle back and forth between the horse self and the spiritual horse, you know, that the horse is, like you said, the horse is, is a spiritual being and it is an embodied being. And so there's there's a toggling back and forth that's needed because to assume that all the information is coming from the spiritual horse self is not going to be correct because a lot of that information is going to be coming from the embodied horse self that um, is not all-knowing and, um, you know, all of these wonderful things, but actually is, you know, unbalanced or in need of healing themselves or, you know, has something to learn from you. Right. Well, and one thing I did want to say also is so now that I've said all of this, there are times when you really want to guard your horses from people. I haven't found a ton of those, and here are the ones I have found, (laughs) let me just say. Hmm. Psychosis. Psychosis. When there's a client with psychosis, I do not, I will say no. No, I will not work with them because I've seen that so multiple personality disorder or whatever else it's called. I'm sorry, I'm out of date there with that terminology, um, any kind of sociopathology, um, those kinds of um, illnesses, I've seen it really harm the horses to be around that. Um, mm. And so I would say no to that. I also, I use, um, you know, Pam LeBlanc is a uh, Reiki and, and beyond master um, who works with horses, and I regularly work with her when I can, when I can get in. She's very busy, but... Um, so working with energy healing, um, a, a good friend of mine, Jess Kentmans, I work with a lot as well on energy healing. I have learned, you know, the Masterson method is a brilliant way to help your horses. Um, the Masterson method flow, which is a method I had shown at the um, Healing with Horse Collective, uh, the last um, um, symposium, and every symposium will always have something like this in it, as well as every telesummit. Um, any kind of massage and uh, Reiki, those you know, any energy healing or body work that you can get your horses, I would do. I would please do because the the horses can take on energies, entities that they themselves can't release even in a pasture. And mm-hmm. so, um, I, I think that that's kind of important to know about um, and to look for. Again, it's going to be if you keep trying things and it's not improving, try something else, and you might end up at that door if you're not already at the door of energy work for your horses. Um, The other thing I wanted to say is when you're working at a place like uh, where you've got maybe adolescents coming in who are or or kids who are troubled or anything like that, I I either take all the fly spray out of the situation or, or any other kind of harmful chemicals or I put water in the fly spray bottles instead of fly spray. if if we want if we the want. person to use them. Because I have seen a situation like that where the person sprayed fly spray in a horse's eyes to because out of, you know, whatever, for whatever unkind reason. And obviously I don't want that kind of thing to happen. So know your client and um, really try to protect your environment, your horse environment from that. If you're doing a so session wait, where you're I have, not doing I have to ask for clarification on that. Are you giving the client fly spray for themselves or to apply to the horse? Well, in this case, it was a grooming activity. I mean, the, the, 
Uh, this isn't something that happened to me. It's something I heard about. Um, But it did make me, when I worked at a program, I um, did change. I just took them away. I I, um, didn't use fly spray. I mean, I would put the fly spray on and then lock the fly spray in my office. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The kids, uh, I don't know. I haven't had a setting where they're bringing fly spray out, but that's a good point if they are or if you're giving it to them to use, maybe you have them do it before you go out to the horses and then you leave the fly spray there and you make sure to look for those kinds of things. If you're working with um, that kind of group, you are working with a therapist um, or something like that, Be you really will want to think about those kinds of things and set your environment that you're going to walk your clients through up to be safe for your horses later. You know, mm-hmm. um, that, that Those kinds of things I would not... Um, I would invite people to really think about, you know, when they're doing this work. Um, I don't, I don't want any of that kind of thing to happen to my horses. I don't want someone who thinks that that's a good idea to be around my horses. Um, and I'm not, I'm sure, not sure, you know, that I've ever had someone that would do that kind of thing. And I've worked with some pretty scary criminals. But, but anyway, anyway um, um, you know, those are things, those are to, things think to think about. And if you think about them, then you just, you can, you know, you can relax more in your sessions anyway. Yes, exactly. And and know that you've provided for your horses in the different scenarios. Now, Deidre, you've got the, the collective has a couple of um, events coming up for equine-assisted therapists. And you've got a telesummit, telesummit, which is going to be, you know, a digital experience. And then you also have a live in-person symposium down in Arizona. Could you just tell people a little bit about um, what kinds of, like just just an overview of for both for both the telesummit and the symposium, what kind of help and support are you going to be offering um, to your members through those things in case someone would like to go to your website and maybe register or check it out? Yeah. Well, the Telesummit is an annual event that happens every spring. This year it will be in fall, yeah, I'm sorry, not in fall, in February. Um, and the exact dates aren't up yet. Um, but th- it's a series of calls from leaders in the field um, and people who have some really useful and wonderful information um, and training tidbits for you. So, Jeannie, you'll be one of our um, um, presenters uh Working with um, business development, if if you've seen, I mean, if people know you through Listen to Your Horse, they've already seen your amazing website and the amazing amounts of learning on there. And you've rocked my world with what you know about business development in ways that I've never seen shown before that would actually apply to this field. Um, I've seen lots of people who want to do business development and help people. I haven't seen someone who can help people as much as you can, so that's really, I'm so excited about that. We've got Linda Kahan of coming, Lynn Thomas of um, EGALA, uh, Coel Simpson of the Equus Institute. Um, we've got a lot of different people uh, who will be a part of the Telesummit. And those, when I say it will be released in February, when it's released, those calls are free for 24 hours each. Um, and then you can buy the set after at any point once it starts being released, um, if you want to keep the recordings and listen to them over and over again. So there's that. And, I mean, it's really one of the best deals anywhere for the breadth and depth of information you get each year. 
Um, it's quite remarkable. And then the, the um, symposium is in um, April. It'll be in um, Apache Springs, which is in Sonoida, which is outside Tucson, Arizona, this year. Um, Apache Springs used to be where Linda Kahanif was with the Epona Quest and then before she moved to the place she is in, on Eagle Way now in uh, Amato. But um, uh, so it's this, um, it'll be a nice reunion for Linda. She'll be there. It's the fifth annual symposium, so we're making it a big deal. <laughs> we're going to make it, it's usually, my the goal is usually to make it as affordable as possible. That that goal will stay there, but there are also going to be some luxury ways to, to come and join in um, so people can come in different um, come in in different ways. There will be scholarships and um, ways to stay less expensively, ways to stay in the more um, uh, sort of luxury vacation way. Um, so anyway, so that will be there, and uh, Coel Simpson will be there for that too. Po there's the possibility Lynn Thomas will be there of Igala. Um and we've got just an amazing lineup. There's workshops beforehand and after. And the dates for that, if you include the workshop dates, are um April twenty seventh through May first. And then there may also be a three day workshop past that as well. But anyway. So you can yes, spend a good week <laughs> doing that, that kind that of stuff. Apache Springs Ranch is such an incredibly gorgeous venue. So it's going to be wonderful to just be in that space. So if anybody wants to find out more about the Telesummit or the live in-person symposium, they can um, get all that information off Deidre's website, which is www.healingwithhorse.org. And if you want to follow what we're doing um, over at my blog, it's listentoyourhorse.com. And thank you so much, Deidre. It's been a fantastic call. I think we covered a lot of ground. And <laughs> Yeah, I think this will be you. really helpful for people. Uh, I hope so. That would be awesome. Thank you Thanks so much, so Jeannie. Much. This has been really fun. Excellent. We'll do it again sometime for sure. All right. Thanks, Deidre. Thank you. Bye.